0: This is the Uncommon Wisdom Podcast, a podcast companion to the Substack newsletter, Uncommon Wisdom, that helps listeners uncover unusual wisdom through conversations and interviews with some of the most interesting people around. Please like, share, and subscribe. It's free with new content every week. Enjoy the show. I am joined today by Professor Travis Timmerman, who is the Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Seton Hall. Travis, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So I wanted to get started with your background. Um, I'm curious how you became a professional philosopher.
1: Yeah, Um, the short answer is I went to graduate school, (laughs) got a job after that. Uh, But the longer answer is uh, probably just as uninteresting. But I, I thought I wanted to go to law school as an undergraduate. And one of my academic advisors had told me I should take a course in logic to hone my analytical reasoning skills to do well on the LSAT. And I was undeclared at the time. Uh, so I took the course, thought it was really fun and interesting. Uh, so I took another philosophy course and took another philosophy course uh, and became interested in political philosophy and majored in political philosophy, uh, sorry, majored in political science and philosophy. Uh, and then just over the course of those four years, became more interested in academia than law. So I initially tried to pursue uh, graduate school in political science. Uh, did a master's in political science and uh, realized that uh, the political philosophers in the department that I was in basically wanted me to be more of a historian um, than anything else. And I was not just interested in... Um, Learning about the Western canon and trying to figure out what some people in the canon would say about contemporary issues today or going back and doing uh, a kind of historical analysis of their work. So more interested in trying to figure out what the uh, correct answers to, be, to these questions that interested me were. Uh, so that pushed me uh, back into the philosophy department and um, I got lucky after applying to lots of schools, got into one, Syracuse University to do my PhD. Uh, And I was waitlisted at Syracuse. And I think I probably just barely made it off the waitlist into that school. Uh, So I got lucky there. Uh, And then I was at Syracuse for five years. And then I graduated and got lucky again and got a job at Seton Hall.
0: So Peter Singer is probably one of the most, if not the most famous, living philosopher today. And one of his um, pet projects, if you could call it that, uh, would be alleviating poverty. So Singer has famously argued for a number of decades that we are obligated, morally obligated, to give a lot more of our money to the poor than we do. Um, Can you explain sort of his argument?
1: Yeah, sure. So the argument that he's given in many works um, dates back to the famous paper, Famine Affluence Morality, that was published in Boston Public Affairs in the early 1970s, I think Probably most undergraduate students come across this at some point. Uh, It's a very simple, deductively valid argument, uh, and it's one that Singer thinks only appeals to common sense moral assumptions. So even though Singer himself is a utilitarian, uh, he thinks uh, anybody with kind of common sense moral views is going to have to accept each of the premises of the argument, and since it's valid, therefore accept the conclusion. Uh, So the first premise. it's just an assumption uh, that he makes. He doesn't really defend it. He just thinks it's a kind of plausible moral axiom. It says, suffering and death and lack of food, shelter, and medical care are bad. Uh, and seems, that seems like a plausible moral axiom to me too. <laughs> so far, so good. Right. Then the second premise of his argument says, if it's in your power to prevent something bad from happening without sacrificing anything nearly as important, it is wrong not to do so. And he does uh, attempt to justify this uh, very briefly in the original article and in more detail in subsequent books, uh, such as um, The Life You Can Save, uh, by appealing to this thought experiment that's become really kind of famous and uh, pervasive in the philosophical literature. And Singer says, uh, roughly, most people think this is true to see why. Imagine that you come across a young child drowning in a shallow pond. They're flailing about, they're about to die, if no one goes in and saves them. Now you can go in and save them at no danger to your life. Because the pond is shallow, it's just a matter of you kind of waiting in and pulling the child out in time. Uh, But the catch, so to speak, is that in order to do so, you'd have to ruin these nice new shoes that you have that are worth at least a couple hundred dollars. You take them off, it'll be too late, the child will have drowned by then. So Singer says, and think rightly, that most people just given common sense moral assumptions would think that it's wrong to let the child drown in order to keep your shoes nice and clean. That you'd be kind of, not not just would it be wrong, but it'd just be monstrous for you to place more value in maintaining the nice shoes than saving a child's life. Okay, so that's our it justifies premise two. Uh, premise three, yeah, the first two are moral premises, the third is just kind of an empirical premise. A singer says, look, by donating to aid agencies, you can prevent suffering and death from lack of food, shelter, medical care without sacrificing anything nearly as important. Uh, now, I mean, this wasn't true in the 1970s, but now we can just get on our phones, find an effective charity, give a couple hundred dollars out of our bank account to a good organization, such as the Against Malaria Foundation, and if we do, we give enough, uh, we can be quite confident that we'll prevent a innocent child from dying who would have otherwise died. So one way to put Singer's argument is, uh, if it's wrong not to sacrifice some comparably trivial good in order to save a child's life right in front of you, is likewise wrong not to make uh, the same sort of comparably trivial sacrifice in order to save a child that you can't see. So those three premises entail the conclusion, says if we don't donate to aid agencies, we're doing something morally wrong. And that's quite extreme. One thing that's, I think, quite brilliant about this argument, is Singer takes these assumptions that uh, he thinks most people are committed to already, and then shows that these entail together a conclusion that pretty much everyone rejects, at least people in kind of western affluent nations think of giving to charity as super Like, You know, it's a good thing to do, but it's not wrong not to do, and if you're going to give your money away, it's sort of fine to give to whatever sort of cause that you want, barring something you know, positively... Uh, horrendous like the KKK. But if you want to give to like a museum, most people think that's fine. Uh, But if Singer's argument is sound, it's actually not. Actually should be giving our money to effective charities and we do more good relative than other places that we could spend the money.
0: One way I like to think about Singer's argument is that we were required to give until it just becomes too costly. So there's some threshold where you give up to that point, it becomes too costly. There have also been a lot of criticisms in the literature of Singer attacking various angles of his argument. But I wonder if you might walk us through what you think is wrong with the argument. Yeah, sure. So I am
1: i should say I, I think there's a good chance that the argument might actually be sound, although I have some reason to doubt it. Um, but even if the argument is sound, It's going to have to be justified by taking on theoretical commitments that the typical person doesn't take on. So, in uh, a paper of mine titled Sometimes There's Nothing Wrong with Letting a Child Drown, which is a clickbait title for sure, uh, I suggest that there is uh, a potential morally relevant difference in the way that we imagine the situation that we're in in Singer's drowning child example, and the position that we're in to aid those that are living in extreme poverty. So the basic thought is that when people imagine Singer's description of the case, even though he describes it in an ahistorical way, we're implicitly assuming that this is an anomalous event. And that's sort of reasonable for people to at least implicitly assume, because we don't typically find ourselves in the situation which Singer describes. Uh, We sort of think, well, we haven't had to come across drowning children in the past. You probably won't do so in the future. This is just kind of a surprise, one off event. Okay. Unfortunately, given how pervasive global poverty is, um, the last uh, stats that I looked at from the World Bank, which are a couple years old, believe said around 734 million people, which is about 10% of the world population, live in extreme poverty. Uh, And about 25,000 people, including 10,000 children, die from hunger and related causes each day. Uh, These are easily preventable causes that effective charities are able to, uh, to stop if they have the financial resources to do so. So given how pervasive that problem is, the situation that we're in as any time that we have some expendable income, we'll always be in a position to save the lives of people living in extreme poverty by donating that income to an effective aid organization. Right. So the most relevantly analogous case is not the kind of one-off case where you come across a child drowning in a shallow pond, but one where you're kind of constantly surrounded by children. And what I claim in the paper is that common sense morality would permit a person to stop short at some point in order to uh, get some comparably less important good for themselves, and that these intuitive responses to the case provide some defeasible reason against premise true Singer's argument. It's certainly not decisive, I think that actually the premise might be true for theoretical reasons, but this is some evidence against it. So I could just give the case really quickly, this way listeners could test their own intuitions against what I say here. So here's the case. Uh, I'll just quote it from the paper. Say, imagine uh, unlucky Lisa gets a call from her twenty four hour bank telling her that hackers have accessed her account and are taking $200 out of it every five minutes until she shows up in person to put a hold on her account. Due to a legal loophole, the bank is not required to reimburse Lisa for any of the money she may lose, nor will they reimburse her. In fact, if her account is overdrawn, the bank will seize as much of her assets as is needed to pay the debt created by the hackers. Fortunately for Lisa, the bank is just across the street from her work, and she can get there in fewer than five minutes. Uh, We can even imagine that she's about to get to the bank as part of her daily routine. On her way, however, she notices a vast space of land covered with hundreds of newly formed shallow ponds, each of which contains a small child who will drown unless someone pulls him to safety. Lisa knows after each child she rescues, an extra child will live who would have otherwise died, and it would take her about five minutes to pull each child to safety. Now, she's faced with this choice about how many children to rescue before she enters the bank. And once she enters the bank, we can suppose that the children that she hasn't rescued will drown and die. OK. Things only get worse for her from there. For the remainder of her life, the hackers repeat their actions on a daily basis. And every single day, ponds adjacent to Lisa's bank are filled with drowning children, which means every single day, she faces this dilemma of, stopping the hackers to maintain some resources for herself or giving those up to save children. Now, I think it might be obvious that Lisa is obligated to save a great many children and to make a very kind of serious sacrifice uh, in order to do so. But if premise two of Singer's argument is true, this means that Lisa is obligated to make this extreme sacrifice day in and day out. Uh, until she's given up everything that's comparably as important as a child's life. So she probably is obligated to sell her house and move into a tiny little studio and only eat ramen or whatever kind of cheap food that she could eat that's healthy and not pick up extra hours at work and just make a much more extreme sacrifice than pretty much anyone, even existing effective altruism. And my thought is that's not intuitive. Uh, most people would think it'd be permissible for Lisa to take, let's say, one five-minute break in her entire life to do something that's not nearly as important as saving a child's life. Maybe she wants to just work on saving children as much as she can for 40 years, then take a five-minute break to, let's say, watch like a short Pixar film, just because she loves us so much. She just wants one one more time of you know, a little enjoyment from a nice animated short, and then goes back to saving children for the rest of her life. Uh, I think that's, given the common sense view, permissible for her to do, Uh, yet it's inconsistent with premise two.
0: So I'm not sure why Singer can't press you here and say something like, well, it seems like that if I have to move into a studio apartment, live on ramen, and forego watching short Pixar videos, at that point we might have crossed the threshold of morality just being too costly. And isn't that common sense and consistent with what Singer's saying? Um,
1: I do think it's common sense. I don't think it's consistent with what he says, at least in print. Um, There's slightly different variations of the argument that he gives, Um, but in print is saying that if you can prevent something bad from happening without sacrificing anything nearly as important, it's wrong not to do so. And Singer will rightly allow that there's some kind of ambiguity about what exactly constitutes a good that's nearly as important as a child's life. So sending, I think this was an example he used, you know, sending your kid to college nearly as important as a child's life. Huh. He grants that like maybe it is, although that's, <laughs> that's not clear to me, especially given how expensive college is. It's actually many children's lives at stake, not a single child's life at stake. Or giving your kid braces or something. Maybe that's nearly as important. He doesn't think so, but he allows for this kind of gray area. But, nevertheless, in spite of that ambiguity, there's going to be lots of cases of things that just uh, clearly are not nearly as important as saving a child's life, Um, getting a fancy coffee at Starbucks, or buying expensive name brand clothing, or going on an extra vacation. Um, And I think watching a short film is one of the things that falls pretty straightforwardly into the case of not being nearly as important as a child's life, even if it's just something that you do once. Um, So I do think that presents a problem for the truth of premise two uh, as it's formulated. Even if it's, and you mentioned the point about common sense, and I think what these sorts of considerations show is that the truth of premise two is actually straightforwardly inconsistent with common sense moral commitments that people have in spite of Singer thinking
0: otherwise. Also the word can appears in premise two. And I'm wondering what the nature of the can is there. So it, you might think on the one hand, you can do it and that in principle persons could do this, or you might mean can in the sense that human beings with all of their moral biases, confabulation, selfishness, and all the other stuff can do it. Mm-hmm. Right. In other words, thinking of, of persons as like idealized Agents that always do what's right or have the capacity, versus people with all of their um, psychological baggage doing that. Right, it seems to be ambiguous between those two conceptions of you know what we mean by can when we're talking about persons.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, In print a little bit, and in uh, lots of. versions of this talk that Singer has given, Uh, he does seem to want to take what's psychologically feasible into account. Um, So he will grant, I think this is the line that Singer wants to toe, that just in terms of talking about what our moral obligations are, since he's now a hedonistic act utilitarian and used to be uh, kind of two-level preference-based utilitarian, thinks that we are kind of obligated to give until marginal utility is reached, thinks just if we're speaking in terms of what our moral obligations are, we should do that. But when we're talking about uh, what you know we can reasonably expect of other people to do, and the way that um, society influences us, and it influences how kind of psychologically difficult it is for us to make sacrifices that other people aren't making. Um, I think he wants to hold that fix and say that when we're thinking about what we might hold someone accountable to, or when we're setting goals for ourselves, we should look at what's psychologically feasible. So I think he does want to appeal to both, if we're talking strictly about our moral obligations, that's not a role that can, is just picking out what uh, we have the ability to do. But if we're talking about how we should practically live our lives, then I think he wants to just talk about what psychologically, what we can do in this kind of psychologically feasible sense.
0: How does that then dovetail to the debate between uh, actualism and possibleism and ethics?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So I think that this is a kind of serious issue that effective altruists need to wrestle with more. Um, I'll just say briefly with Singer, uh, when I asked him about this, uh, he identified himself as an actualist. Uh, that wasn't like an official thing in print. This was just a kind of friendly conversation. I wanted to see where he stood on the debate. Uh, and he, uh, unsurprisingly to me, had actualist intuitions. So. Uh, just roughly, actualism says that when you're thinking about what you're obligated to do, this is actually a claim about what your moral obligations are and just not, not just a practical thing. Um, when we're figuring out what we're morally obligated to do, we have to hold fixed facts about how we would freely act in the future. So in uh, thinking about what we should do in terms of giving money to uh, aid people living in extreme poverty, Uh, I'm going to have to think about when I'm deciding what's going to do the most good possible. Um, Not only what I can do now, but how I'm going to subsequently act in the future. And uh, Singer has pointed out, in the life you can save, if you go kind of in full throttle and try to give until margin and utility is reached when other people around you aren't doing that at all you might quickly become burned out or disillusioned or subject to acrasia, you know, weakness of the will, and then just stop completely. Uh, whereas if you just gave um, a smaller amount, it might seem like a small enough sacrifice that you would, in fact, in the future, be willing to continually make that sacrifice over and over and over again. So he has a kind of sliding scale of what he thinks is roughly reasonable to uh, expect to be psychologically feasible for the typical person to give based on their income. Um, so maybe it's reasonable for me to give, say, 10% of my pre-tax income uh, every uh, every paycheck, and that wouldn't be so difficult that I would become disillusioned and give up. And then, if I do that, I'd give more in the long run than if I tried to just empty out my bank account right now uh, and then constantly give everything that I possibly can in the future. Then I might just give up after a year or two because it's so, because I find it so hard to do and then never give anything again and that'd be even worse. So actualists like Singer are going to take this fact about how I would act into account when trying to determine not only what we should practically do, but what our moral
0: obligations in fact are. How does this contrast (laughs) with a possibleist view? So you you might think of Singer in possibleist terms rather than actualist terms. How would that differ?
1: Yeah, good. So uh, the possibilist says that uh, we're obligated to do the kind of best thing that we can over the course of our whole life. And that also means, according to the possibilist, but not the actualist, that we're obligated to perform each act that's part of this set of the best things that we can do over the course of our whole life, kind of irrespective of what we would in fact do in the future. So the possibilist is going to say, you know, if you accept, let's say, um, hedonistic act utilitarianism, uh, and are uh, kind of moved by uh, what Singer says about the importance of aiding people that live in extreme poverty. We might be obligated to just give pretty much all of our paychecks away each week, at least to the point where marginal utility would be reached, Uh, because we'd be obligated to do that over the course of our entire lives. And the positivist would say you're obligated to do that, kind of no matter how you would subsequently act in the future. So suppose that if I tried to give all of my expendable income away today, uh, I would have immediate regret (laughs) when I found something I wanted. I don't know uh, what like a new car or something like that. I'd immediately regret the decision and never give anything away again. uh, Maybe I become uh, so psychologically damaged by it, I just become a terrible person and descend into uh, you a know, kind of uh, perverse state where I could even be murdering innocent people left and right as a result of being so psychologically traumatized from giving money away. I mean, that's a silly kind of cartoony example. But the point is, no matter how extreme the consequences, the possible says I'm obligated to do the thing right now, that's part of the best thing I can do over my whole life, kind of independent of what I would, in fact, do. So, Singer's obligated to give away a bunch of his money right now, too, even if that means he would not do the most good in the long
0: run. Let's apply this to let's apply this to an analogy to see if we understand. So, if I'm an actualist about, say, the keto diet, maybe I need to lose some weight, right? My lockdown paunch is beginning to show. <laughs> so, I go on the keto diet, and if I'm an actualist about that, I think you know I should be a, I should diet on keto. I should eliminate carbs to the extent that this is sustainable in the long term, and I'm not going to want to go out and like binge and just completely like gain a ton of weight. Cause I'm so sick of keto. Whereas maybe the possible would say, no, you should be like maximally keto like each and every meal mm. um, to hell with the sustainability.
1: Right. Right? right. Yeah. I think that's, uh, I think that's right. Right. Um, mm. I don't know about this right so the sustainability in terms of maintaining the diet is that what you meant by sustainability yeah right yeah I think that's right I think the kind of standard case in the literature is very helpful at teasing apart what's different about these views and uh I also think it's helpful at illustrating why the view that I defend in the literature is the one that I think is plausible right so there's lots of versions of cases that have the same structure but here's a version that was given by Michael Zimmerman, but it's just kind of based off a standard case in the letter called Professor Grassford. Uh, but Zimmerman's is a little more fun. So suppose that I've been invited to attend uh, an ex-partner's wedding, and we you know, ended amicably, and I can you know, attend and be nice, and that's what would be best for everyone. So I just received an invitation to attend an ex-partner's partners wedding. And the best thing that I can do is accept the invitation and show up to the wedding and just be you know, a pleasant, nice guest. Um, the worst thing would be to accept the invitation, show up at the wedding, get inebriated, and then act out in a fit of jealousy and ruin the wedding for everyone. That would just be the worst possible luck. And the kind of middle-of-the-road thing that's not as good as the best and uh, not as bad as the worst would be to just decline the invitation and not go at all. It'd be some hurt feelings uh, but it wouldn't it wouldn't be as bad as actually showing up and ruining it suppose furthermore that even though I can do any of these three things and actual some possible agree about this that I can have the ability to do any of these uh, what I would in fact freely choose to do if I accept the wedding invitation is at the time that I'm at the wedding I would then decide to just drink too much and ruin it for everybody. I could abstain, that's just not what I'm going to do. I'm gonna make the free choice to just ruin it for everybody. Okay, so now the kind of question that actualists and possibles are concerned with is in light of these facts about how I'm freely gonna act, am I obligated to accept or decline the invitation? And possibles say, well, you're obligated to accept and show up and be, you know, behave yourself because that's the best thing you can do over the course of your life and that means you're obligated to accept and you're obligated to do that kind of independent of the fact that you're going to just in fact just destroy it for everybody whereas actualists say and uh securitists uh that if right now no matter what i intend to do when i accept the invitation i'm going to freely decide to ruin the wedding once i'm at the wedding let's say i'm obligated to decline the invitation because what would actually happen if I decline is better than what would actually happen if I accept. So actualists and securists say obligated to decline the invitation. Now, both of those views, I think, have serious problems. Uh, I already mentioned the one for possibleists. They say I'm obligated to accept the invitation, even though I'm going to ruin it for everyone. And if that's not enough to change people's intuitions, just up the ante, right? Make it some kind of trivial good and the consequence extremely drastic. So maybe uh, the best thing I can do is accept the wedding invitation and show up and behave myself. And that's just because my ex-partner would get like one little, just like a little bit of extra mild enjoyment from my attendance, but they would hardly care at all. Um, But what I'm actually going to do, let's suppose if I show up, is just go on a murderous rampage and kill everybody in attendance because that, that's how jealous I am. Okay. Uh, Boswell still say I'm obligated to accept the invitation even though it's gonna result in a just horrific outcome. Um, but actual sincerity, I think, have equally serious problems. And they uh, allow agents to avoid incurring obligations just in virtue of their dispositions to behave badly. Uh, and that seems weird. You know, I shouldn't get out of having to do good things just because I'm not <laughs> going to do them, right? That seems quite bizarre. Uh, but it also prescribes you might think of as positively terrible behavior, especially terrible uh, given that the actual grants you can you know not do the terrible thing in question. So if I'm going to, sorry to use all of these examples, but it's one of the fun things about applied ethics. If I'm going to uh, let's say I have anger issues, and uh, if I don't murder an innocent person today to get my rage out, I'm going to murder two innocent people tomorrow, uh, no matter what I intend to do right now. And the actual grants, I can not murder anyone today. I can decide not to murder anyone. Once tomorrow rolls around, I can decide not to murder anyone. But I'm just freely going to murder two people tomorrow if I don't freely murder one person today. actual says I'm obligated to murder an innocent person today. Even though I can just not murder anyone. And that that seems pretty uh problematic <laughs> to me. All right. So here's a view that I like that I've defended uh in a kind of rudimentary form in a paper in Philosophical Studies and uh co-authored paper with Ishai Cohen in the Australasian Journal of Philosophy. a uh, so view that uh call hybridism, and just roughly the basic idea is the possiblest ought tracks our moral obligations. And then there's a kind of practical moral ought that tells us how to act to minimize the wrongdoing uh, across our lives. So in the kind of wedding case, the form of hybridism that I favor would say, uh, I'm obligated to accept the invitation and show up at the wedding to behave. And in virtue of that, I'm obligated to accept the invitation. I'm morally obligated to. Nevertheless, when I, as the kind of imperfect moral agent that I am, am thinking about what to do once I get the invitation. Practically speaking, morally I should accept it, but practically speaking, I should decline. Not because I'm obligated to decline, but because that's the act available to me right now that'll minimize the amount of wrongdoing across my life. If I don't... Decline the invitation now, I'm going to do something even worse. So hybridists say, sometimes you should do kind of small wrong act right now in order to prevent yourself from doing an even worse moral act at a later time. Still wrong to do it. Still wrong to do it. And you can be criticizable for it. But you should do it because it's less wrong than what would otherwise happen. That's the kind of crude idea.
0: Even you were penchant for murder. I'm glad this interview... <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, but all joking aside it, it seems like your the distinction between the actualist and the um, possibilist view seems to mirror their attention and morality so it seems on the one hand morality is supposed to guide us uh, and give us ideals for behavior like things that we ought to do these sort of moral um, ideals but at the same time it's also supposed to guide um, it's supposed to provide a guide for action like what we should be doing, Um, like on the ground. And it seems like that tension in morality is mirrored in this distinction between the actualist and possibleist. Is that about right? Did I lose you, Travis? I think I might've lost you.
1: So I I think that's right. Um, Possibilism and actualism, as formulated, uh, both supposedly, I think, pick out a kind of action-guiding moral ought. Nevertheless, um, possibilists, uh, such as Michael Zimmerman, will be kind of quick to point out, well, there can be kind of conditional obligations and other practical facts that have to be taken into account when we uh, are thinking about how to deliberate and how to live our lives. But I do think it's right that kind of actualists, just given the type of people that they are, tend to be more concerned about the, um, uh, the kind of action guidance of more prescriptions. And possibleists tend to be kind of focusing more on this kind of ideal about how we should be acting and paying maybe less attention to thinking about just in terms of the action guidance of the moral prescriptions, And hybridism solves all the problems by positing two different moral odds, one the ideal and one the kind of practical, guidance, practical action guiding.
0: Um, this also has interesting implications for ought implies can. Um, but anyway, um, so you, you've also worked on um, sweatshop, the ethics of sweatshop labor, which is sort of a dicey topic. And how yeah. this debate between the actualist and the, and the possible sort of links up to that. How does that shed light on, or how does that distinction shed light on thinking about the ethics of sweatshop labor?
1: Yeah. So it is a bit of a dicey topic. Um, well, I just want to say one thing about the actualism possibles, and debate in general um, that I think makes it both so fascinating, at least to me, and I think just uh, quite important is that this debate actually interacts with pretty much every issue in applied ethics uh, and any normative ethical view, which holds that we have at least pro tanto reason to help others. So I think that's going to be pretty much any possible normative ethical view. you're so going to have to take a stance on the actuals and possibles the debate. But the um, sweatshop debate, in particular, is rather interesting because people in that literature um, sort of raised actualist and possible considerations when carving out various positions in the debate, um, even though they don't do so by name. Um, So for instance, some people attempt to justify the existence of sweatshops by appealing to the fact that employees of sweatshops would supposedly be worse off if the sweatshop didn't exist at all. Um, so, the kind of reasoning behind that is uh, people who are working in sweatshops of their own volition uh, could quit if they wanted, um, but then they would have no income at all. And they choose to work even in situations in which they uh, might reasonably think that they're being exploited uh, because they judge that to be in the prudential interest. If their options are uh, work in a sweatshop where I'm exploited or not have a job at all, and they choose to work in the sweatshop where they're exploited. The thought is, you know, they, they're good, competent judges of what's in their prudential interest, so they judge this to be the best option available to them. Some people sort of uh, appeal to that, whereas if owners of sweatshops, people that open sweatshops, uh, had to pay uh, a so-called uh, living wage, they might just not open up the sweatshop at all and open up the uh, factory in their home country. Um, so this kind of justification, I think uh, is in the spirit of actualism, even if it doesn't strictly speaking commit a person to actualism. And um, the thought is it's permissible for them to open sweatshops if what they would otherwise do is going to be even worse. Um, other people have argued against the permissibility of sweatshops by uh, pointing out, in in my view, rightly so, that it involves uh, exploitation, where exploitation is kind of understood in the literature as when the employer takes advantage of the employee by benefiting disproportionately from the product they together create. So the owner of the sweatshops reaps the vast majority of the profits and uh, doesn't even pay a living wage to their employees. And uh, Some people have argued just on the basis of this, that uh, sweatshops is wrong to create uh, even if the alternative, even if the alternative is going to be worse for the employees. So it doesn't matter that uh, what would actually happen if you didn't open the sweatshop is everyone would be worse off, let's suppose. Uh, What matters is that you can do better. You can open. The factory and pay people a livable wage. And that means that you're obligated to kind of open the factory independent of what you would otherwise do. Oh, well. Um, so I, I wrote this paper with Abe Zacham, who knows much more about the sweatshop literature than me. But what we say in the paper is uh, that hybridism lends support. Uh, to a view that hasn't been defended in the literature uh, exactly, but it's sort of in line with what is sometimes called uh, the reasonable view, uh, which is a really loaded term for a view, by the way. I'm going to start calling my views like the unquestionably true view or the view that's, you know, in platonic heaven, or something like that. But anyway, the so-called reasonable view, I didn't give it this name. Uh, says that it's permissible for consumers to purchase goods from sweatshops uh, in cases in which that's the most that the consumer can do to benefit the employees of the sweatshop. The consumer can't pay them a livable wage. Maybe they should uh, try to fight some political causes to make it the case that they get paid a living wage eventually. Um, but right now, when they're just deciding where to purchase goods, if they purchase goods that come from a sweatshop, and that's going to Uh, benefit the employee of the sweatshop more than any other option available to the consumer, the reasonable view says that's actually more permissible for them to do. But nevertheless, says the reasonable view, it's impermissible for employers to create sweatshops because they could pay their employers uh, a high wage. They could pay them a living wage. So, um, Hybridism says, at least holding fixed certain empirical assumptions about the effects of well being on sweatshop employees, which are uh, questionable. Um, But let's suppose, as some people do in the literature, that at least in some cases, maintaining your job at a sweatshop is actually going to be better for you than not having the job at all. Uh, Hybridism says, kind of in line with the reasonable view, and given these assumptions about the rankings of outcomes. Uh, that it is permissible for consumers to purchase goods from sweatshops when that is the only option available to the consumer to best help the employees of the sweatshop. And it also says that owners of sweatshops are indeed doing something wrong by exploiting their workers. Uh, They can open the factory and pay them kind of high living wage and then are obligated to do both in virtue of doing so. Uh, nevertheless, nevertheless, this might be what uh, some people have most kind of practical reason to do. Uh, if opening a sweatshop shop is going to benefit the employees, and what you, the owner in question would otherwise do is not open it at all and make everyone worse off, then they can have practical reason to do something that's quite horrifically morally wrong now in order to prevent an even worse outcome. But nevertheless, it certainly is still wrong for them to do so, and they can be criticizable for that fact. Uh, and this would also mean maybe third parties uh, should not interfere or prevent the creation of sweatshops in cases, if there are any, but in cases if there are any. Where opening it is going to be beneficial to people, and preventing this opening is just going to harm people.
0: Allow me to press you on the consumer end of things. Yeah. So, suppose I'm a consumer, and I'm buying something from Nike. And mm-hmm. as it turns out, Nike uses sweatshop labor to produce these products. Why can't I point out that my purchasing is just irrelevant as an individual? So, in aggregate, consumer choices matter a lot. You can put pressure on companies using financial incentives yeah. to change. But little old me ain't going to do much. Whether I buy that pair of Nike shoes or not, it doesn't seem like it makes much of a difference. So I guess the, a way to ask the question I have is, doesn't your point really apply to groups of consumers rather than individual consumers?
1: Right. If each individual consumer, uh, if their choices about what to purchase are causally impotent, then yes, the argument would only apply to groups. And I actually think that this is something that's um, not explored at all, in the actualist possible literature at least, is uh, applying actualism, possibles, and hybridism to group rather than individual obligations, and thinking about the implications of that in various uh, issues in practical uh, ethics, or in applied ethics. Um, that being said, um when individuals are deciding how they should act, um, they can only do so in light of the evidence that's available to them. And in those cases, for reasons that people like Peter Singer and uh Shelley Kagan have given, um it's not clear that you can rule out the possibility, at least not relative to my evidence, that some Uh, individual act tokens of purchasing, uh, say, shoes from Nike, uh, is going to hit a threshold for demand and then actually make a difference. Um, It might be very unlikely that that's going to happen, um, but then the consequences, if it does happen, might be so beneficial or disastrous that maximizing expected value relative to the evidence available to me um, might actually require, I think, that you... Abstain from purchasing uh, shoes from sweatshops if that's going to be very harmful, or you know, fill in other things. Abstain from purchasing meat that comes from factory farms, or uh, fill in, fill in the thing in question that's very bad.
0: Can I explain why I find the threshold response puzzling? Yeah, please. So I press you on the difference between groups and individuals, and I've noticed vegetarians do this. I don't know the sweatshop literature very well but it wouldn't surprise me if, if that threshold response were used there too, where people were like, hey, look, it might be that you abstaining from buying that 10,000th pair of Nikes is what convinces Nike to change, right? It took all of those purchases. Yeah. But it seems like what you've done there is smuggle back in the group. It really depends on what everyone else does, right? So it really doesn't, if I don't know whether or not people are gonna, um, people are going to say boycott Nike in sufficient numbers along with me, Um, It might be that I'm taking a huge practical hit, and that's presumably worth something, too. It really seems like it depends on what other people do as well. So it seems like, in a sense, you've smuggled back in the group when answering a question about what individuals should do, right? Like, it really depends on what the rest of the group does, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. So I think it's going to be true that the – Consequences of our actions are always, just given the world that we live in, going to depend on what some group does. Um, When we're deciding whether our individual act contributions are going to make a difference, we have to hold fixed how everyone else is acting, and then ask what the consequences of our individual contributions are. And in many cases, you might think there's not going to be any normatively relevant difference at all. so one kind of, I think, very clear example of that is uh, voting. So at least if I'm deciding whether to vote uh, in the presidential election. In the United States, there's never been a case where one individual vote has changed the outcome of the president, presidential election in the sense of you know, who gets elected. Um, so that's a kind of very clear case when your, your individual uh, act of voting is causally impotent. Um, so you hold fixed what everyone else does, and then you ask, if I vote, is that going to change the outcome? Uh, no, it's not. So then thought is your causally impotent. But nevertheless, uh, whether you've made a difference is dependent upon what other people in the group have done. Um, but it's just given how they've in fact acted, your individual contribution is not going to make a difference at all. And The same thing is going to be true in the Nike case, Uh, probably in the vast majority, if not every instance, of purchasing Nike shoes. You're not going to hit a threshold and change the outcome. What I thought is, since you don't know, as you pointed out earlier, since you don't know how everyone else in the relevant group is acting, uh, there's a non-zero chance relative to your evidence that your contribution uh, will change the outcome of the number of shoes that are produced and maybe the number of people that are exploited in sweatshops. Now, that's going to depend on the, a group in the way that it, you know, every action depends upon what other people are doing. But if we're holding fixed how everyone else is in fact acting, it might be the case that you buying that one additional pair of Nike shoes, given how other people have in fact is the one that tips the scale towards increasing the orders and then maybe increasing the number of people that are hired in the sweatshop and then increasing the number of people that are exploited. I don't know if that helps or if I've just
0: not answered your question. Oh, it's a difficult question. I totally put you on the spot. Uh, That's perfectly fine. I Actually, wanted to switch gears a little bit before we run out of time because you've done some work on a topic that has interested me since I was uh, a small child going to church, the question of heaven. I remember being very puzzled by the notion that the afterlife would be eternal. Like, I remember sitting in church, listening to the pastor talk about um, the afterlife and our heavenly um, residence, and being very puzzled by like, how we would be entertained for that long. Mm-hmm. Like, what if they run out of rides and like stuff for us to do, right? Like, yeah. you make that Disneyland as big as you want and you an infinite number of, of visits to Disneyland, you're eventually gonna do everything. Mm. i guess should we actually think um immortality would be desirable kind of sounds like it might be awful actually
1: yeah good interesting so it sounds like you might be uh persuaded by these concerns that bernard william raises in his work uh and i'm not so this will be interesting so I'll, um, I'll i'll say what i think briefly i'll review why williams thinks immortality would be bad for humans uh, and tedious. And I'm not convinced by his argument, and then you can tell me why, uh, where you think that I've gone wrong. Um, but yeah, so I mean, look, there's lots of different types uh, of immortal lives that you could have. So I should just say that off the bat. Um, I, my wife and I rewatched one of my favorite films the other day. Uh, it's such a beautiful day. And uh, spoiler alert: uh, in the end of that movie, the character who is kind of facing death throughout the whole film just uh, either. Uh, dreams or actually does become a true kind of immortal but everyone else around him is not Uh, so he builds relationships and he loves people and then they all die and then all life dies and then like future beings of light friend him but then they die and then the heat death of the universe happens and he's just like floating in space for an eternity so he actually gets a fate that's much 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 worse than death so there's lots of different types of immortal lives we can have and when we think about whether some type of immortality would be desirable, we have to think about you know, what else is happening in the world. And so I think uh, that at least you know some types of immortality would be horrible, like this the fate of poor Bill in It's Such a Beautiful Day. Uh, but nevertheless, I think some types of immortality would in fact be quite good uh, for, for humans like you and me. Uh, heaven at least on some conceptions of it, sounds quite wonderful. Um, Okay, but Williams and a lot of people, I should say a lot of people in the literature, disagree. So in a chapter of Williams' Problems of the Self, I basically says immortality would be undesirable for us because we'd either um, maintain the kind of character that we have and then become interminably bored because we'd do everything that we'd want. Given the type of person that we are right now, and once we did everything that we want, it would kind of cease to give our lives meaning, and uh, it'd be better at that point if we were dead. Um, or Williams allows for this possibility: uh, our character would change through the years. we develop new kind of interests and in, uh, what he's going to call categorical, categorical desires, which I'll explain in a minute. Um, but the rough idea is that our character will change with time. So that we can be perpetually interested in different things. Um, but if that is what happens, William thinks that right now, uh, given the type of people that we are, we have no kind of prudential interests in seeing this future person come into existence. Uh, either it literally wouldn't be us, or I think much more plausibly, uh, it would be us, but it'd be such a different version of us that our present selves shouldn't care about bringing that Version of us into existence. Um, that's the kind of short overview. The, William's argument is a little more complicated because it relies on this distinction he draws between uh, what he calls conditional desires and categorical desires. Uh, so conditional desires are just those that are uh, conditional on being alive, uh, as William puts it. So, kind of, you know, desire for water or oxygen are thought to be paradigmatic examples. Of conditional desires, Uh, I don't want oxygen unless I'm alive and I need it to live. Right, I need it to breathe. Um, Categorical desires are the ones that we have uh, by virtue of what which we want to be alive, and uh, according to Williams, it's kind of these desires that propel us into the future. So the desires that we have um, that we want to live in order to fulfill, Uh, and that's going to vary from person to person. They're going to have different projects that generate these so-called categorical desires. Uh, But some examples are things like, you want to have a new project of raising children, uh, or you want to finish a novel that you've been working on, and you want to be alive in order to create this work of art and then get it out in the world. Um, Commitments to political and moral causes all, all sorts of things might be categorical desires, it's whatever uh, kind of gives you reason to live. Okay, so William's argument can really be understood as a kind of dilemma. Um, his thought is that given enough time, we'd either satisfy or lose all the categorical desires that we have right now. So just make a list of your categorical desires. William's is going to think that it'd be a finite list. And if you live long enough, uh, you're eventually going to satisfy all of them. You're going to complete all the novels you wanted to. You're going to um, you know, get to raise children and so on. Um, or you're going to lose them. Maybe you fight for a political cause for years and years and years and eventually just become apathetic to it. Um, or, the so thought is, we gradually and continually develop new distinct categorical desires. So that's stuff that doesn't interest us at all now. Uh, and then avoid boredom. But at the expense of changing the type of person that we become, to the extent that, like, right now, we supposedly have no prudential reason in trying to see this person come into existence. So, um, I don't like golf. Maybe that says something about me. It just seems so boring. Uh, but, yeah, maybe on William Zhu, imagine that, like, i get sick of philosophy. I'd get sick of philosophy at some point. I wouldn't wanna try to read or write any more philosophy. Um, but maybe then, at some point in the future, millions of years from now, I would develop an interest in golf uh, and want to be the best golfer that I could. And uh, that would happen with every single categorical desire so that the person in the future would look very kind of alien to my present self, such that I just wouldn't want that. Okay, So that's William's argument. Um, I'm not convinced <laughs> for uh, a number of reasons, and I, I, I can go through those if you want, or I can... Uh, not go through that and and hear what you think about William's argument, or if you think that is a fair kind of description of what he 's up to in problems of the self
0: um well I think that no I think that's a fair presentation um, I, I think you're either facing you either keep your categorical um, desires in which case they're all eventually satisfied if they 're finite, or you morph into someone you have very little interest in being like i have no I have very little interest in becoming a golfer because, like you say, I think it 's boring too. It's even worse to watch golfing. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't. It's lost on me. I mean, apparently some people are worried this way. I'm not one of them. I have about as much interest in becoming someone who likes golf as I do in my neighbor getting to the golf course today. It just doesn't seem to like it really matters that much to me either way. Yeah. Um, but I'm curious if you could go over maybe a couple reasons why you you don't buy Williams' take on the afterlife.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, a lot of them are in the literature. Uh, First, I just think that there are some categorical desires that uh aren't necessarily exhaustible, so that we wouldn't lose them even given the type of character that we have now. Um, pursuing kind of just political and moral causes was one that I mentioned earlier. Uh, I think you can perpetually care about that, and uh it'd be great if those problems were solved, but there might be situations in which uh, those problems are never completely eradicated and to take a kind of less Uh, sad example. This is uh, one of maybe which reason people disagree, but I think eternal love, both uh, platonic and romantic love with people is possible, and that could be a kind of categorical desire. Um, Maybe you have some kind of very broad abstract categorical desire, so rather than mastering, say, playing uh, guitar, you want to master playing uh, all possible musical instruments. And there might be an infinite number of possible musical instruments. And then that kind of broad categorical desire uh, might be something uh, that is never exhausted. Um, As another kind of related issue uh, that Chris Belshaw has pointed out is that William seems to be assuming um, that not only would we change in the sense that we'd be immortal, but he seems to be imagining that our uh, memories are enhanced drastically. Such that we would recall each of these kinds of experiences of satisfying the categorical desires that we've had, but that's not how our memories actually work right now. And when we're thinking about possible types of immortality, I don't think there's any reason to uh, suppose that we would um, correctly be omniscient with respect to uh, memory, uh, remembering what we've done in the past, and that would allow for, I think, uh, some kind of categorical desires that are not exhaustible. So I desire. Um, I have many categorical desires. Let's take a more trivial one. Maybe a categorical desire I have is to appreciate all good art. And one uh, film that I uh, quite like is a Martin McDonough's In Bruges. It's a brilliant dark comedy. And uh, if I watch it over and over and over again now, the, there will be diminishing returns on how pleasurable it is for me to watch. Um, but that's just because I recall what I've seen, I'm not surprised in the same sort of ways. I'm, I stop noticing new things that I, uh, because I've noticed it all on, on previous viewings. Um, but if I watch it once every 10,000 years, let's say, as an immortal, and my memory kind of works similarly to my actual memory right now, each time I watch it, it could be completely surprising and pleasant and I can appreciate it for its fine qualities every single time it'll seem uh, new to me, even though it's not. Um. Uh, Some people might think that is um, going to be kind of meaningless existence if you're doing things that you've already done over and over and over again ad infinitum. Uh, But I think a meaningless life, of course, I don't think that is necessarily meaningless, but even if it is, um, a meaningless life can be prudentially valuable. So imagine all of the kind of political and moral issues have been solved. There's no wrongdoing. Everyone's living a really happy life, so you're not kind of doing something immoral by sitting on the couch rather than going out and trying to, trying to help other people. Uh, and you're enjoying yourself. You're enjoying these films that you've seen before because maybe you know the fact that you've seen them before, but you don't recall the details of the films. Um, I'd rather have a kind of meaningless life that's good for me and not immoral than no life at all. Um, now, a third thing that Thad Metz has raised is that uh, you might think being internally bored isn't sufficient for meaninglessness. So maybe you do run out of categorical desires and you're internally bored, but you also uh, nevertheless help people run a charity to try to aid people living in extreme poverty, try to fight for the uh, rights of sweatshop laborers, you try to uh, end factory farming, you can do all sorts of these things. and I'll suppose you're quite successful at it. I might think that's a meaningful life, even if it's um, not one that's particularly pleasurable or involved in satisfying capital desires. Um, I'm not sure if there is any such thing as meaning, but if there is, that strikes me as quite plausible. A uh, couple of then quick uh, points, uh, but, well, I'm not convinced, and then I'll, uh, then I'll stop talking. Um, but Sophie Grace Chappelle, uh, I think rightly notes that when we think about these kind of drastic changes between our present self and what we might look like, say, a thousand years from now, um, it it sort of seems sudden to us. But in reality, there would be a kind of very gradual change that's happening, pretty similar to the kind of gradual changes that happen right now. Um, So the changes we brought about through a series of uh, successive chain of events, where you progressively replace your old desires with new ones, uh, even if, and this, uh, this is a quote from her, even if one's projects may be each of limited temporal duration, they may not finish all at once, they overlap like threads in a rope. I find that helpful. It seems kind of bad if you suddenly change and drastically change your personality, but if this is happening gradually, um, I don't have the same sorts of counterintuitive uh, concerns that I would have in a, in a thing where this happens immediately. Um, and this relates to a point that David Benatar has brought up, but that's, a, I think, a different point. Uh, and this is something that I really worry about. Uh, I mean, I, it seems to me William's argument proves too much because my, uh, the cate- I didn't have any categorical desires as an infant, <laughs> right? I couldn't, like, think, I didn't have the requisite cognitive capacity to develop categorical desires. And then when I did have them say five years old or 10 years old or whenever I started developing categorical desires, um, they're completely different than what my 34 year old self thinks. Um, but then if we follow Williams reasoning, it seems like it's going to entail that my like five year old self didn't have any prudential interests in turning into the 34 year old self that I am now, even though my life has been fortunately quite uh, on the whole good. Uh, And that seems uh, like a reductio to me. Uh, So long as my present self is uh, identical in terms of personal identity with my five-year-old self, and the subsequent life has been on the whole good, then I think it was good for my five-year-old self to continue to live to my 34-year-old self, even though I don't have any kind of categorical desires that I had at the time.
0: That is quite a list of, of responses, Travis. Yeah, um,
1: I'm really yeah. not convinced by
0: it. I'm really not in the grips of this argument in a way that most people in the literature seem to be. Um, yeah, yeah, it struck me when you were, you were talking, and I, I've, I've read William's article before and thought about it, um, in part because, you know, heaven is sort of something I grew up with, and I think it's something a lot of people think is just this obvious good. And then Williams comes along with his tedium challenge, And you're like huh i hadn't really considered that disneyland ain't really disneyland if i'm going every single day i mean it's sort of a a cartoonish way to put the point but um and recently i've been thinking about um williams a little bit and i thought i think part of the pull of his argument is that he takes heaven out of its context so you you sort of hit on it earlier when you said um, when i think of an afterlife it really depends on how you construe the afterlife and if you take it at least in the christian tradition which Obviously there are other sorts of what we might call heavens in different religious traditions. Um, but at least in the Christian tradition, uh, it might be that the value of heaven is not that it's eternal or that it satisfies my categorical desires. Although it might do that. Um, it's rather that it allows me communion with the greatest good, which is communion with God. Right. And that's an inexhaustible. There's something just good about that for its own sake. And um, that going to heaven, Uh, will in part um, inculcate or bring about a transformation such that I will see God and communion with God as the good that it is. Mm, So it's almost like Williams is trying to like naturalize in a weird way or secularize the afterlife. Um, I mean, another point that comes to mind when you were talking was that, you know, kind of like you were saying earlier a little bit about if I'm continuous with the person in heaven it's i'm like i'm in heaven so i'm the same person and i'm i have a good existence something that's you know valuable it's important something that um that i value um it even if it's discontinuous so like even if the categorical desires that i have in heaven don't really comport with anything here now it might be that i have an interest in that even if i don't recognize that i do right People yeah. are really bad at, like, affective forecasting. We are really bad at dealing with like, transformative experience and anticipating, like, it's really hard to anticipate what it's going to be like to be a parent prior to having a child. It's something that's really hard to articulate and appreciate until you're actually in the middle of it. Right. Um, and it seems like it's granting um, too much, it, it's assigning too much reliability on the part of our judgments when we grant Williams the premise that I would have no interest in becoming this distinct person who I don't recognize right? It seems like he's assigning a lot to our judgments about that. And it's not, it's not clear why we should do that. That's puzzling.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. Um, I, I, and I don't know if there's just having read the Williams a fair number of times, I don't know if there's some kind of deeper explanation beyond, um, him thinking of this as maybe a kind of fundamental axiom and something that's intuitively plausible. Uh, but that, Supposed intuitive plausibility relies on us imagining right now, given the existing set of categorical desires, uh, whether we want this life that seems kind of very alien to us. And just in virtue of the fact that it seems very alien, we're inclined to uh, say no. But upon further reflection, you just might think, you know, lots of things can seem alien to you now because, uh um maybe you don't understand what it's like, you're not actually fully grasping the scenario, so you uh, can't even conceive of what it would be like to meet uh, an omniscient, omnipotent, omnibenevolent. being, right? uh, And even lots of just real life examples, so you mentioned having kids, that can be a transformative experience. Uh, and I just can't even conceive of what that. <laughs> Would be like, and in virtue of that, I can't even maybe accurately put myself in the right kind of headspace to uh, think about whether it's in my prudential interest to have those sorts of categorical desires. It might just not be something that I could comprehend. Um, but even with things that I can comprehend, like becoming a fan of golf and not liking philosophy, uh, there's a, there's a couple of things that might be happening there. So one, you might think if you really change everything, including uh, maybe your values. Uh, so you might be thinking one kind of change is that you become a morally worse person, uh, but that could actually provide you reason not to live forever. It just won't be prudential reason. It would be in your self-interest to keep living, but like maybe you morally shouldn't do that if you're going to become an evil person. Um, but uh, you know, when we're imagining immortal uh, lives, you don't need to imagine that uh, we become terrible people. Uh, you just imagine that in terms of like morally neutral activities. I, I assume. It's morally fine to play golf as boring as it is. Right? Uh, then when we're imagining those, th- that we can kind of restrict the changes to these morally neutral uh, terrains. Um, but then once we do that, it's not, it's not so clear to me why we shouldn't want that. I don't want, to, I don't want a life where I'm playing golf now because I don't like golf. But if I do like golf, I would want to live a life where I have the ability to play golf, no matter how boring I find it.
0: You know, and to add to that, here's another reason you might think that um, Williams is, is sort of missing the boat. So suppose I go to heaven and I eventually, to, use, to keep using the golf example, um, I go from a love of philosophy to a disdain for philosophy and a disdain for golf to a love of golf. So I become this golf-loving, disdaining, philosophy disdaining guy. Yeah. And you might think, okay, from where I'm at now, from my current vantage point, that's very puzzling. But if you assume that there's identity between me now and me then, I'm the same person then as I am now, then presumably um, I had some pretty good reasons for that transformation. It may have been gradual, it may have been incremental, but at each step there were good reasons why that incremental I took that incremental step toward becoming this different person. Okay. So that you might imagine, at least, at least plausibly, I mean it's not decisive, but you might imagine a case where you could become this person you don't recognize, But where it makes each step along the way makes sense to you connecting those two different people
1: yeah right yeah i think we can imagine cases where i i I do think we can imagine cases where you change but not for any conceivable good reason but maintain your personal identity um and i think we can imagine cases where you change for good reason as well um golf golf is sort of a tricky example though because i tell me what you think about this, but I just sort of think of this as a subjective preference. I mean, I do think there's good reasons to enjoy playing golf. It's a game that takes a lot of skill, right? Um, And I can understand that being a kind of motivating reason for people to play. But there's lots of other elements about what playing that game is like that just happens not to be appealing to me. But I don't think of that as a, I'm kind of being responsive to reasons. I think of this as a kind of mere matter of taste. I enjoy doing some activities that involve skills, and I you know, don't particularly enjoy doing others for whatever reason, but I'm not sure that there's some kind of like um, good reason to prefer one rather than another. Uh, so I just, when I imagine liking golf in the future, if, <laughs> it's like if, when I'm a I'm imagining that I just have a kind of subjective preference that changes uh, over time. Um, where when I think about changing over time for good reason, I think about ways that my moral views might change over time. So maybe right now I think uh, something's wrong or maybe I just think it's morally neutral and it's not on my kind of radar. Um, But then in the future I come to think that you have to take a certain stance on the issue. Um, I would hope that that change is brought about because I was exposed to new evidence or an argument that I hadn't previously considered and then change as a result of that. That seems like a kind of case where I I'm changing for a good reason rather than something that's more kind of arbitrary. Um, but I don't know, that's just kind of a rough off the cuff response. Right? Are you thinking of changing towards activities that you like, like golf? Are you thinking there's some reason to like or not like golf that's objective and it's not a kind of subjective preference or, or how are you thinking about this?
0: I was. It was actually a bit underdescribed. Um, I mean, you might imagine like, you know, you, you're a new arrival in heaven and it, comes out, there's, it turns out there's, like, this charity golf tournament for a good cause. And you're like, okay, this would help people on Earth, right? So you start doing it and come to find out, like, you don't get enough, like, exercise. And the sunlight and the the well-manicured grass is actually kind of nice. And then, you know, you, you realize that, like, there's something interesting about, like, hitting what you aim at when you take a swing at a golf ball. It's just something satisfying about that. Like, and you sort of incrementally, like, over a time, over thousands of years through moral reasons and not, it just becomes something that you enjoy.
1: Yeah, okay, good, right. Yeah, that seems really plausible to me and I think it's really helpful too when you think about it in terms of Williams' argument because when we're imagining how it would be drastically different in the future, but not, and I take it that this is just your point, not imagining the kind of reasons that we might have undergone these changes, then it can seem kind of very alien and maybe very uh, perhaps even irrational of us to make those changes. But if we're cognizant of is like each of the incremental changes that we make and the reason that we make it, and they're all perfectly coherent and rational, um, then maybe the thought is it ceases to be, uh, seems so alien to us and, and we can kind of see why it would be desirable even though it's not something that we right now want to do. Is that the thought?
0: Right. And, and, and that's exactly the thought. And if you couple that with the fact that people are very bad at forecasting these things, like, I mean, right. I, if I ask you know, a random person to imagine what it would be like to win the lottery, right? Their image, their mental images that, that that sort of elicits aren't necessarily predictive of their mental states, had they actually won the lottery and live that scenario out. So it right. might be if you couple that poor judgment when it comes to forecasting the future, imagining your life in these different scenarios with a scenario where you could, slowly incrementally and with good reasons transform to that different person. And it seems like the the practical part of the dilemma that Williams has set up isn't nearly as compelling.
1: Yeah. Good. That's really helpful. That seems right to me. So is Williams done now? Does that, can we all (laughs) pack it up and not talk about it
0: anymore? Well, speaking of projects that matter, uh, are you working on anything new that you'd like to share with us?
1: Yeah, um, I'll say briefly, one thing, I I am working on a project thinking about uh, William's argument in mortality. Um, And one thing that strikes me about his argument is that he holds fixed various facts about our psychologies. Like we get diminishing returns with frequent repetition of activities that we find pleasant and remember doing. But he's not holding fixed other facts about the way that we're constituted. Like, he's not holding fixed the fact that our memories are imperfect. And of course, he's not holding our mortality fixed, right? So we have to you know, change some things about the way the actual world is to imagine what our life would be like uh, in these uh, really possible worlds. And one kind of worry that I have with his argument uh, is that there are certain contingent facts about our psychologies that, if changed, uh, would, I think, ensure that certain categorical desires are inexhaustible. It's not clear why, if we're not holding fixed facts, say, about our memories, that we should be holding fixed facts about our psychological dispositions. Um, So a lot of responses to William sort of uh, take all the assumptions that he wants on board and then try to argue that immortality would be desirable, even given our existing psychological dispositions. Um, And I think a lot of those arguments are actually successful. Uh, But even for people that aren't motivated by those, we, it's important, I think, to ask the question about whether we would find immortality desirable if certain facts about our psychological dispositions were changed, and then whether we should want uh, both an immortal life and those features about our psychology. And I think the answer to that, or at least what I'm going to try to argue, is uh, yes, we should want both of those things. Um, so that's one thing. I'm working on another paper in death on the uh, so-called timing problem of the badness of death. So I, have in my work, defended a view uh, called deprivationism. And the rough idea is that assuming death results in the permanent cessation of your existence. So we're just talking about heaven. But let's imagine um, that there's no afterlife. And once you die, you just go out of existence forever. Uh, There's a question in the literature, could that be bad for you? Uh, And the view that I want to defend, that's the most popular view by far in the literature, is deprivationism says, yes, that can be bad for you, and it's bad for you to the extent that your death prevents you from missing out on additional good life you would have had had your actual death not occurred. Right? So if I, say, got in a car crash and died today, um, my death would be bad for me to the extent that uh, if I hadn't died today in a car crash, I would have gone on to live a more happy life. But if you take that view, take. Um, but it seems like you have to answer the question, when is your death bad for you? Uh, and every answer that's been given in the literature seems uh, to result in some kind of problematic consequences, uh, so people, and people have defended seemingly every view. So some priorists say, your death is bad for you right now before it happens. And that seems odd because it doesn't generalize. We don't say other events are bad for us before they happen. If I'm going to break my leg tomorrow, that would be bad for me. Presumably, it's bad for me once my leg is broken and I'm suffering. It's not bad for me now, right? Um, Some people say your death is bad for you at the moment that you die. Um, And that seems to have a generalizability problem as well. Um, Not all events are bad only at the times that they occur. Take the broken leg example. Presumably, it's not bad for me. Just the instant I break my leg, it's bad for me. While I'm suffering, and and more soft than I would be had my leg not been broken, it'd be no comfort to me. If I break my leg and I'm in screaming in agony, and you say it's okay, the legs the bad thing's over now. You broke your leg. That already happened. Or, no, it's it's bad for me afterwards when I'm in pain. Um, some people have defended uh, subsequentism. They say it's uh, your death is bad for you at the, at least some of the times, maybe all the times after you've died. Um, and that fits well with what we say about most bad events, but it seems problematic because you don't exist. You might have trouble understanding how something can be bad for you at a time that you don't exist. Um, some people say it's bad for you at all times. <laughs> that seems weird. It seems to be doubly bad because it says something's bad for you at times that you don't exist and it's bad for you before it happens and that's not what we say about other events. Uh, some people say it's bad for you but it's not bad for you at any time and talking about badness in time uh, doesn't make sense but we do seem to at least in a straightforward way talk about things like the time at which it was bad for me to break my leg um, or if, you know say I missed out on some experience the time that it was bad for me to miss out on the experience was the time the experience was happening. Um, Anyway, sorry, that's a long setup, but uh, I'm working on uh, a paper that aims to solve the timing problem, and the basic thrust uh, of my thesis is that the question, when is your death death bad for you, is underspecified. It's too vague. So what I do in the paper is I go through four different, more precise questions somebody might be asking when they say, when is it true that your death is bad for you? And then I show that on each of these more precise interpretations of the question, there's a kind of straightforward answer that the deprivationist can give that isn't subject to any of the problems that I just mentioned. But that's the kind of basic idea.
0: The when is the when question seems to be a problem for a lot of things, right? So suppose I say uh, genocide is bad and you're like, yeah, but what is it bad? Like when has there been a genocide or when is it bad? And I'm like, Oh, there hasn't been a genocide. Like suppose there's like never been a genocide, right? There's no mm-hmm. when when it's bad, but genocide of course is bad. Right. So is is that? I guess so. I guess I'm puzzled as to why that's a worry. Like, why can't the deprivation just say it's bad? There doesn't have to be a win.
1: Right. Yeah. So you're imagining a case in which there hasn't been any genocide, but the proposition "genocide is bad" seems obviously true. <laughs> right. And this question: when it's bad?" Right. Yeah. Um, good. I should have. I should have specified. Um. The deprivationist who says that individuals' deaths in the actual world are bad have to answer the question about when it's bad for those people. right? So there might be, uh, and I think that there are indeed, uh, universal moral truths that are eternally true. So genocide is bad or genocide is wrong is a, I think good uh, paradigmatic example of that. Um, or, uh, maybe more general one is like causing gratuitous suffering is wrong, and one thing you might be asking when you say um, when is that the case is asking when is that proposition true? When is it true that genocide is bad, or when is it true that causing gratuitous suffering is wrong? I think the answer to that question is um, eternally, or at least for all time. Uh, but the deprivationist is saying that individual deaths, existing individuals deaths, are bad for them. And that seems to raise a question about when is it true that the death was bad for that particular individual. So it's not an abstract claim. Um, And they seem to have a problem there in a way where you don't have a problem answering questions about particular genocides, right? So now, moving from this kind of abstract claim and imagine a world where there isn't Um, unfortunately, horrifically, in the actual world, there have been lots of genocides. And we can ask when those are bad, and those are, this kind of straightforward answer seems to be, well, it was really bad for people at the time that they're made worse off than they would otherwise be, and then it's bad for every subsequent person in every subsequent generation that's negatively affected by uh, the historical genocide. And the worry that people have in the death literature is that you can't give an analogous response about actual deaths that have occurred, uh, because by supposition, people cease to exist once they die. So there's a kind of straightforward answer to when particular genocides are bad, because we can point to people who exist in the world who are made worse off by the genocide. Um, But when we're talking about an individual that ceased to exist, well, then there's not a kind of straightforward time that we can point to that is bad for them, at at least supposedly. I'm not convinced by the timing problem. Uh, the, my whole paper is to try to show that this isn't actually a problem, uh, but, uh, but I'm just trying to give the people that press the problem their due, I'm trying to give the Epicureans their due.
0: I, I'm tempted, I want to press you one more time just because I can't help myself. Sure. Uh, um, so you might, so you say, look, um, genocide is bad as like this eternal principle, whereas when it comes to this deprivation stuff, individual deaths, um, it's sort of time indexed, right? There's a certain time that an individual dies. But I'm not sure why that matters to the deprivationist. I'm, I'm not sure why, why can't they say um, death is bad when, you, when the counterfactuals would have been better and you were deprived of those counterfactuals. Just like I can say, um, say the genocide of Native Americans was bad. I don't really have to index it to a time. But it's still nevertheless true that it was bad. In other words, I'm, not, I'm still not sure why, even at the individual level, we even have to answer the when question.
1: Right. Yeah, good. So that sounds sort of like a response that Fred Feldman gives in his book on death called Confrontations with the Reaper, which is the best title for a book on death ever. (laughs) But So he says, look, uh, the question, when is your death bad for you, is really nothing to ask. And when is it true that your life in the actual world contained less that good than the life uh, you would have had in the nearest possible world where actual death didn't occur? Uh, and assuming that your death is bad for you, assuming that it does deprive you of additional goods, which it does for some, but not all people. Uh, And I think assuming counterfactual determinism, uh, the answer to that question, when does this relationship hold, uh, will be always, right? Uh, It's always true. Um, And I think insofar as we interpret the question to really be asking, this claim about the truth of counterfactuals, I think that answer is right. But there's other ways to interpret the question um, that seem pretty standard and commonsensical. Because we don't, I mean, you can say the same sort of, you can give the same sort of response to any harmful event, and that doesn't seem to uh, comport well with uh, everyday use of the term. So if I ask, when was it bad for me to have broken my leg? saying, well, you know, it's always bad for you because <laughs> uh, the world in which you broke your leg contained less that good than the world in which you didn't, um, the nearest possible world in which you didn't. It uh, doesn't seem to really be answering the question. When was it bad for me that my leg is broken? I I'm, I'm, seem to be maybe asking something more specific, like uh, uh, for what time is it true that I'm worse off as a result of having my leg broken than not? And that, that just seems to be a different question than the one that Fred Feldman was concerned with.
0: Yeah, I guess I'm thinking about this more as you're answering this. Um, something you're getting at. And I'm wondering if maybe maybe the issue here is, um, I mean, one question is about time, like when something becomes true. And the other one is like what makes it true, which is a, a question about the counterfactuals. What do the other nearby possible worlds look like? Um, yeah. Maybe that's what's going on here. I, I really don't know. I mean, this is not my area, but it's definitely an interesting question to be sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what you're saying is basically right. So um, one one question we might be asking when we ask when some event, whether it's death or some other event is bad, um, is when the propositions become true. Uh, Another question we might be asking is what grounds the truth of those propositions, as you mentioned. Uh, Another question we might be asking is at what time does a bad event occur? Another question we might be asking, is when is it true that a momentary well-being level is lower than it otherwise would have been? I mean, this is just what I do in the paper is I consider a, a variety of these different kind of more precise questions that I might be asking, and then show that each one of these more precise questions has a straightforward answer. Um, that's what what we actually say in everyday discourse is probably just underspecified because the question, you know, "When is your death bad for you?" is pretty vague, and we don't even normally ask about when events. Are bad. Uh, full stop, that just tends not to be how people talk. You might ask like, how long were you in pain when you broke your leg? Uh, <laughs> you, know, you don't have someone come to the hospital and say, you know, what times was it true that breaking your leg was bad for you? So I, I just think the question is really kind of linguistically uh, vague. And um, once we get to these – to kind of do what you're doing, once we get to the kind of more precise things you might mean by that, then I think the problem just completely disappears.
0: Well, Travis, thanks for sharing about your work. This has been a very interesting interview, and thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun.